With that, I would invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, this is the word of the Lord. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Bow our heads and pray, please, as we begin this morning. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we, we may not be that excited right now. I don't know what's going on in everyone's life here, but there's a lot of souls represented. What I do know is that you know each of them in every moment of their history up until this point, and that you have, through these few verses, something powerful and something exciting, something serious to share with us. And I pray that you will, through your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive it this morning. Amen. Please be seated. There are two reasons why First Peter so far, but this passage in particular, are very special to me, so rich for me. The first is because uh, hopefully what you can see on the screen here is my youngest son's name was taken from these verses. Michelle was in a women's Bible study going through 1 Peter, uh, I guess it was around nine years ago. And uh, when you're going to have a baby and you're thinking of names, names pop out of all different places. And uh, through this, this word Livingstone, which we pronounce Livingston for him, uh, came out and we both fell in love with the power of the sound of the name and also the meaning of the name. And of course, it's been our prayer ever since that he would uh, not only go by that name, but that Hunter Livingston would be who he is. As God wrote the Bible over hundreds of years, uh, we say that the revelation was progressive, meaning that he kept expanding the picture and adding to it as each new book was added. And that's the other reason that studying, that studying First Peter, including this passage, is so exciting and rich. It's toward the end of God's revelation, and so uh, it builds on everything that was re- revealed before. Our verses today have only 125 words, and most of those words honestly just repeat words that had been said already in the Old Testament. How can so much be concentrated into so few words? Because Peter is tying together and applying to his original readers and to us rich truths from earlier scriptures. These verses today and what we'll look at next week are the ending of the first section of the letter. And here Peter brings to a a stunning climax his description of who the Christian is because of who Christ is. He began exciting these Christian exiles 
way up at the beginning in his greeting by reminding them that they were chosen by God. And then in verse 3, he reminded them of rebirth and living hope. And then moved on to themes of inheritance, praise, glory, and honor at Christ's return. And this passage is special because Peter reminds his original readers and us that our blessings are not just reserved for heaven. I think we tend to be preoccupied with the daily pressures and the obligations of being Christians. We don't cherish the lasting privileges that God has given us to enjoy. If that happens to us, what about these dispersed ones that Peter is writing to? Some of them far from home, not just from heaven. They've been rejected by society for abandoning the way that things have been done. They've been demeaned and ostracized and minimized by both the Jewish and the Gentile world. So in these verses, Peter lifts up their head. Helm explains these are stunning words. And Peter is raising the identity of his early readers to storied and unimaginable heights. In one sentence, Peter grasps the entire wealth of Israel's identity and applies it not to Jesus alone, but to any man, woman, or child who comes to faith in Christ. When we come to Jesus, not to Jerusalem, we come to the living stone. When we come to Jesus, not to Judaism, we come to God's kingdom. When we come to Jesus, not the ornate temple, we become God's spiritual house and holy priesthood. These phrases applied metaphorically here to Peter's early readers represent the most exalted ideas within all of Judaism. So these Christians are feeling beat down and insignificant. And now by way of a a triple metaphor, Peter proclaims, that they're at the very heart and center of God's activity in the world. In Christ, they're being built up into the house for God's very presence. They were God's special building project. They are now the priests offering sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And not just any priests, royal priests, as we'll see next week. He's saying, and I'm saying to you, you're not nobodies. Your pain is not wasted or unnoticed, though it may be in the world and by the world, but your royalty, priests, and the very place God and his presence rests. This is exciting. While suffering marks this life, and while our glory is to come, we are already exalted in unimaginable ways here in this life, though we remain exiles. So my hope and my prayer this morning is to make you excited exiles, to motivate your actions and your obedience, not by pressing you down today, but by lifting your heads to the joy and treasuring of what is yours right now. Our outline today is to rest our minds, our hearts, our lives on on the costly cornerstone, Jesus to marvel at our temple transformation as living stones, to embrace our wonderful work as a holy priesthood. And finally, I want each of us to consider our decision and destiny. 
Will you choose treasure or tripping? Those are your only two options. So let's start with our costly cornerstone. In verse 4, Peter gives us his first metaphor. It says, as you come to him, that's Jesus the Messiah, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Peter says Jesus is a living stone. And he extends the analogy by asserting that the stone was rejected by men, but it's precious to God. Now, as we get started, I have to just admit this. On the spectrum of people and their need and their appreciation for metaphors, way over here we have the just give me the facts guy, and then way over here we have me. And a lot of you know this already about me, but I really need metaphors, especially when it comes to spiritual or abstract concepts. I need something physical so I can pick it up and turn it around and look at it. Let it go deeper. So where did Peter get this analogy of Jesus as a living stone? Is that any good? Well, we have a lot of metaphors in the Bible about Jesus. He's the living water, we're told, the light of the world, the lion of Judah, the sacrificial lamb. But a rock with a beating heart seems a little strange. Well, commentator Jobes says that Peter's source for this stone imagery was likely the teachings of Jesus himself. In all three of the synoptic gospels, Jesus prophetically identifies himself with the rejected stone. In fact, all seven New Testament passages that quote the Old Testament stone passages unanimously identify the stone as Jesus. Peter quotes three Old Testament verses, and in them we see that the stone imagery has something to do with building. There are two building projects going on. One is God's building project, and then there's another man's building project. Look at verse 6, where Isaiah 28:16 is quoted, and God describes his building project. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In verse 7, it's a quote from Psalm 118, 22, and now it's describing man's building project. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And again, in verse 8, Peter likely here quotes from Romans, quoting Paul, as Paul cites Isaiah 8.14. Listen to Romans 8.33 and how it's reflected in Peter's words in verse 8 and also back up in verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So these stone metaphors were written much earlier in the Old Testament. And there's actually clear evidence that those Old Testament passages were already being applied to the Messiah by the Jews even before Jesus appeared. So Peter chose a biblical metaphor, so that's smart. Now let's look at why it's so good. First, in contrast to the Gentiles around them in the world uh, who were worshiping actual rocks, that means dead rocks, stone idols, 
In contrast to that, Peter designates Christ not as a monument or a dead principle, but as the living, resurrected, and therefore life-giving one. Secondly, we need to learn about cornerstones as part of ancient building foundations to see why calling Jesus the cornerstone is so powerful. Listen to this quote. Clowney states that in the building technique from which the figure is drawn, the cornerstone of the foundation would be the first stone to be put in place. Since both the angle of the walls and the level of the stone courses would be extended from it, the cornerstone must be square and true. Large and precious stones were cut for the foundation of Solomon's temple. Tim Keller did some research on this and actually found that in some of these ancient buildings, up to half of the total cost of the building was paid for the cornerstone. Extremely important. These are not little stones, and they weren't easy to find or to make. Here are a couple of pictures of real cornerstones in Jerusalem. Here's a, a stone where the south wall and the western wall of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem meet. This stone is 33 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 3 feet tall. It weighs about 50 tons. Next, here is the largest stone in the retaining wall of the Temple Mount. This stone is one of four stones that create what is called the master course. This stone is 41 feet long and weighs between 570 to 630 tons. That's over 1 million pounds. It's 15 feet wide and 11 and a half feet high. Why did they need something so huge and strong and expensive? Because everything rests and depends on the cornerstone, ultimately. Verse 4 says that in the sight of God, Jesus is a chosen and precious cornerstone. When God looked through his options for a cornerstone, for his eternal spiritual house, looking for someone who was strong enough not to break under the enormous pressure and weight. Someone who had every angle and every dimension perfect and true. He saw that his son Jesus was that incredibly precious living stone and he chose him and laid him in Zion. One commentary explains that this stone would be laid in Zion means uh, not only that Christ had lived in and around Jerusalem, this is incredibly important, but also that this new building that is the Christian church, the new covenant with Christ as the cornerstone would actually replace the old building, the Jerusalem temple and the old covenant. These verses tell us that as we come to him and believe in him, we will not be put to shame. This means that trusting God is never misplaced. God will never let you down when you build your life on Jesus. These words greatly comforted the believers facing persecution. As a building rests on its cornerstone, so believers rest in Christ. All weight, all confidence, in all directions. We'll remain shaky until Jesus is the foundation of our lives. It's our foundation that we build our hope upon. If our hope is in something else, then when the storm comes, we will shake and we will fall. In Luke 
6, 40, uh, verses 47 through 49, Jesus himself teaches about this. This is so cool. Look at the parallel here of coming to me, coming to Jesus. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Notice here, the question isn't, will I have a flood in my life? We all, you all have many circumstances in life that feels like a tsunami wall of water crashing into you. But as Keller points out, the flood is not your problem. Let me repeat that because I actually don't think we usually believe this. The flood is not your problem. This verse promises that we will never be ashamed. But we're ashamed all the time because we're not built on him. The things that we trust to protect us from the waves is what our foundations are built upon. Even if we say we trust in Jesus, we have other things as our functional cornerstones. If we can get the right collection of close family, good job, optimistic future, some nice things, and a pile of money tucked away for that storm, then we'll be ready, we'll be okay when it comes. But it's a lie. Jesus says so himself. We need to look down at our foundation and see what we're standing on. What are you standing on today? For the storm that's coming. Or maybe is around you even right now. Well, whatever you just thought of, it needs to be dug up. It's not that it's bad in and of itself necessarily. It may be. But it needs to be dug up and you need to lay your foundation on the rock. He's perfect. And when the flood rises and the stream breaks against your house, it cannot shake it. You will never be ashamed of building on Jesus, which means coming to him, hearing his words, and doing them. Are you excited about this costly cornerstone that you've been given? Maybe not all of you are, and sadly, Peter knew that everyone would not be excited. The people in his day met this costly cornerstone, and they rejected him as their foundation. Peter uses the term builders to refer to all the people across all ages who toss Christ aside like an unwanted stone, choosing to build the foundations of their lives on something else. MacArthur points out, and I think this is important, that the word for has been rejected means rejected having been examined or tested. It's not that they were looking for a good cornerstone and they couldn't find him. They examined him, tested him, and then rejected him. But this is not unusual, though, for us as human beings to reject things of incredible 
worth and value. Let me just give you some fun examples from literature. I could have picked from anywhere. Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell's sweeping Civil War epic, was rejected 38 times and then went on to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1937 and became one of the most famous top-grossing films of all time. If you're into science fiction, the best-selling science fiction novel of all time, Dune, was rejected 23 times. Lord of the Flies, 20 times, and called an absurd and uninteresting fantasy, which was rubbish and dull. Anne of Green Gables was rejected four times, and Ellen Montgomery nearly gave up, putting the manuscript for the book in a hat box. She said, I struggled on alone in secrecy and silence. I never told my ambitions and efforts and failures to anyone. Herman Melville returned from years at sea with the story Moby Dick. But this is what he was told. We were wondering if changing certain of the story's elements might not buoy its purchases at the shop, as it were. First, we must ask, does it have to be a whale? (laughs) C.S. Lewis received 800 rejections before he sold his first piece of writing. Now imagine the tragedy, and I know this illustration only works for book lovers, so forgive me, but imagine the tragedy if C.S. Lewis's works had been read and just immediately thrown out, tossed in the fire. Actually, raise your hand if your life and your faith has been in some way impacted and shaped by C.S. Lewis's words. Incredible. Well, Jesus is infinitely more valuable than C.S. Lewis's words. Yet the word was thrown out on the garbage heap of Golgotha. The perfect God-man dying in our place that we might live, he was rejected. And in rejecting Christ, the builders, in spite of themselves, served to put God's stone in place. Now, you may be saying to yourself, all right, Nate, I I get the cornerstone picture. I understand it, but I'm not feeling it yet. It's It's not precious to me. I'm not ready to start digging up old foundation stones that I've had my whole life to solely rest on Jesus. Thank you for being honest. You may not be a believer yet. Or you might be a believer, but you might be trying to straddle with one leg on Jesus and one leg still on all the other things that you put your hope in this morning. So I want to share with you three steps that for me make the difference in connecting this to my heart. The first step to treasuring Jesus is to understand how precious Jesus was to God. That's what our verse says. What does that mean? How precious was he? John Flavel gives us a helpful set of pictures. Think about this. No child was ever so one with its mother. Think about the perfect bond with a child. No husband ever so one with his wife. Think about a perfect bond with a spouse. 
No soul, this is, this is going to take some thinking here, no soul ever so one with its body, something we can all relate to, as Jesus was with the Father. So that's the first step, to understand how precious the love and the connection, the relationship was between the Father and the Son, eternal. They prized each other perfectly, constantly, forever. Now you're ready for step two. Using Keller's words, picturing this this closeness now, the Father turned his back on the Son and forsook him on the cross and let his Son be ripped to shreds. Your sins and my sins put him there. We were the cause for God's wrath to be poured out on that precious relationship and rip it apart. The separation that we can't imagine between us and our children or our spouse or our own body and soul times a thousand, times a million begins to get the picture. How costly. Why did he allow it? More than that, he's not a victim here. This was his plan. Why did he choose it? We're now ready for step three in treasuring the father and the son. Jesus answers this question himself in his prayer to the Father in John 17. Why was this the plan? This is for you now. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be in us. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Yes, you get the Holy Spirit. But even those are just the outworking of the Son and the Father loving the world, even as they love each other, bringing us into the eternal, unimaginable, happy oneness and love inside the Trinity. This is why Peter says, To you who believe is the honor. The Father loves you as he loves the Son. Can you imagine the reunion between the Son and the Father upon his return? Think about what that was like. That's how he loves you. So you are a builder this morning. You have examined Jesus this morning. Now make him your costly cornerstone. And when you do, an incredible transformation takes place our temple transformation. Let's go back to the beginning of verse 4 and read up through the first half of verse 5 to see how Peter describes our transformation. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So as you come to the living stone, you, plural, living stones, are coming to the singular spiritual house being built into that. That's the picture. Now this transformation is twofold and both of these should make us excited exiles. First, we're brought from death to life. Second, we're made part of God's eternal temple. So our identity and our purpose and our forever future is transformed from dead scattered rocks into the living place where 
God not only visits, but where he dwells, his spiritual house. So first, we're brought to life. And part of the beauty, I think, of this illustration uh, is that everyone knows that stones are dead. That's what we say. We say stone dead. Uh, Always. What was the last time that you ran into a rock that was alive? Okay, I made my point. And notice we're not compared here to a bunch of beautiful plants that are brought into God's garden. Though that does sound very nice, doesn't it? Soothing and pretty, peaceful. What kind of flower do you think you are? No, we're stones, but we're living stones. We're living stones because we rest our spiritual everything on the living cornerstone and his resurrected life becomes ours. We are alive, but that's not all, as if just being made alive was a small thing. But secondly, we're being built up or fitted together is what that means into a spiritual house. This is really important. I want you to get this today. We are not individual stones lying apart in a field. Listen to this quote. These living stones, you living stones, are not lying about in idle isolation or disorder in Peter's description. You're not heaped in a pile or scattered across a field. Christians are not individually temples of God in the image that Peter presents. They're each put into place in a spiritual house. It speaks of the unity, significance, and purpose of all believers the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others, not only in one's own generation, but also by being united with believers of every generation who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. The structure will be completed only when the scaffolding comes down of human history, and the kingdom of Christ is revealed in all its glory. I love that. This is what the church is from God's perspective. That's the picture he chose. That's what the church is meant to be. Wearsby says it another way, and I love this too. Each time someone trusts Christ, another stone is quarried out of the pit of sin and cemented by grace into the building. It may look to us that the church on earth is a pile of rubble and ruins. But God sees the total structure as it grows. What a privilege we have to be part of his church, a habitation of God through the Spirit. Note also that the verb, our being built, is descriptive of you, not an imperative. It doesn't say be built or let yourselves be built. It's emphasizing God is doing this work as we come to Christ. And I love the picture of God finding the right place to fit you into his building. What other living stones need to be put in contact with you? And what other living stones need to rub off on you? He's constantly transforming us, shaping us. And I want you to take great joy this morning, if you're a Christian, that no living stone is left out of the building. You may not feel like you fit in sometimes. You don't know how to carve out a space. But there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ, 
There's only one church, global, and all true Christians belong to each other as stones in God's building. And he is at work fitting us together in his grand building project of redemption. Well, while you are living stones in God's building, remember there's two building projects here. The second building is the human building program that rejected him. So they're going to reject you too. The message of Christ as the only valid way to God is just as offensive today in our realistic, our pluralistic society as it was in the first century's polytheistic society. They believe in many gods or many ways to God. We believe that to reject Christ is to stumble in sin. In first century Roman society in Asia Minor, conversion to Christ brought a barrage of verbal abuse meant to demean, discredit, and shame the believers, trying to squish them into the mold of how things had been done and shaming them. And the sustained social pressure that they went under was undeserved suffering that could even lead to despair or renunciation of the Christian faith. So Peter reminds his readers of Isaiah's promise that whoever trusts in the cornerstone placed in Zion will in fact never be shamed and thereby reverses the basis of honor and shame in their self-understanding. Those who trust the living cornerstone that God has placed in Zion will never be put to shame. But those who reject Christ will suffer shameful judgment by God himself. One last point about our temple transformation. This one should be very special for us as Gentiles. Most, if not all, of us sitting here this morning are, are not Jews. We're Gentiles. And I want you to remember that in Leviticus, in the law, we would not be allowed into the temple on pain of death. And uh, that's exactly what uh, the Jews were accusing Paul of doing, is bringing Gentiles into the temple, which if he had been doing, uh, the accusers would have been right. We can't change what the law says about Gentiles entering into that temple. But listen to this, and this is so insightful. The book of Leviticus cannot be amended to admit Gentiles into God's courts. The people then were right in their thinking that the law could not be altered. But their mistake was in refusing to see that it had been fulfilled. The veil was torn from top to bottom. And now all could enter directly into the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ, to whom all of those elaborate preparations Safeguards, cleansing, and animal sacrifices pointed. When we come to Jesus, not the ornate temple, we're built into God's spiritual house. We undergo a temple transformation. Now verse 5 transitions and goes from picturing us as the temple to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I, as we transition Metaphors, I love how Piper puts this. The imagery collapses under the weight of the reality. What God is doing among us is vastly greater than you can contain in one metaphor. 
I believe that. I believe that it's exciting, that our new work is wonderful. Let's look at that. Why is it wonderful? Our wonderful work. Well, we're told we're priests offering sacrifices to God. And at first, that may sound um, Jewish to you, which is certainly true. But, but Keller reminds us that before Jesus, all religions understood there was a gap between them and God. So they had temples. And in those temples, they had priests. And they were offering sacrifices. In fact, early Christians were called atheists at times because they didn't go to temples. They didn't have priests or offer physical sacrifices. It was totally new, a different paradigm. They don't go to meet God in special buildings because they're being built up as the temple. They don't have priests because they are the priests, as we've just seen. One commentary pointed out that the term for priesthood is found in the New Testament only here and in verse 9 following, and that it likely refers to their consecration and separation to God by their conversion and baptism. Now, I've, I've got to be honest, as I think about this, holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, I, I look in at myself and I look out at you, and I ask myself, are we a holy priesthood? Are we offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God? Spiritual sacrifices include, from Scripture, things like prayer, praise, and thanksgiving from Hebrews 13. The practical love of serving one another from Philippians 4.18 is a sacrifice. Your bodies are living sacrifices per Romans 12.1. And there are many other examples of sacrifices that are spiritual that we should be bringing to God in our new, amazing, exalted roles as priests. But this morning, instead of telling you how you're failing at these, like Peter, I want to lift up your head. I think that's his primary purpose here. I want you to be excited about your wonderful work. I want you to be inspired. So let me share some great quotes about spiritual sacrifices that should do that for you. First, it's our privilege as priests to offer sacrifices of prayer. I'm going to go back 15, 1600 years to the church father Chrysostom, Archbishop of Constantinople, who declared these things about prayer. The potency of prayer hath subdued the strength of fire. It hath bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Prayer is an all-efficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother, 
of a thousand blessings. Author Gloria Furman writes to moms about prayers too. She says, Our corporate, missional, priestly motherhood is to everyone and in every place that Jesus sends us. Jesus is having mercy on your kids, for he put a priest in the next bedroom whose prayers ascend like incense before him as you boldly approach the throne of grace and plead for your children's souls. It's our privilege as priests to offer sacrifices also of money, of time, and of energy in evangelism. And where could I go back to quote but John Piper? Listen to this. This is inspiring. The heart that treasures Christ above all things is restless. It wants to do so many things with money for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Something happens to a person's view of money when he begins to treasure Christ above all things. Money becomes mainly a way for maximizing joy in Christ for yourself since it is more blessed to give than receive and for others and you fund the spread of the gospel love is laying down your life to spread a passion to other people for the supremacy of God in all things for their joy through Jesus Christ any action that does not have this at its aim is not Christian love if you do not want your life to be spent to awaken and sustain a passion for God in the lives of others so that they can share this everlasting joy through Jesus Christ, then you are not a truly loving person. Love for others means striving to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That's what love is. And it is very costly for us, just like it was for Jesus. Additionally, it's our privilege as priests to be holy. Wiersbe says this, It is important that we, as God's priests, maintain our separated position in this world. We must not be isolated, because the world needs our influence and witness. But we must not permit the world to infect us or change us. Separation without isolation. It is contact without contamination. We have one more incredible privilege that really makes our work wonderful. And this one's the most meaningful to me personally today because of primarily the fact that I am unhappy with my imperfection. Often I hate my imperfection. I hate the thought of being average. I hate the thought of a whole life that isn't lived for Christ and I know that I won't escape the clutches of sin completely in this life, but it drags my soul down to see all the mistakes I make as a priest every day, at work, at home, at play, and at church. So this truth this morning lifts up my head, and it excites me, though exiled, to keep serving. So listen to this. Your offering 
will please God. Not in and of itself, look at verse 5, but because it is through Jesus Christ. So when we offer spiritual sacrifices in every and any area of life, our jobs, activities, recreation, our attitudes, our giving, our outlook, our goals, those sacrifices are dependent on the work of Christ for their acceptability. How amazingly encouraging that because every sacrifice offered from us who are sinful and weak passes through the perfect sacrifice of Christ on its way to God. And so every sacrifice is accepted. So if you're feeling cast down this morning, if you feel a little bit of what's the point of trying to serve God as his priest, I make a mess out of it even when I'm trying my best, then remember this. If you are in Christ, then every time you take a part of your life and you offer it to God, it is accepted. He will never turn you down because you're not good enough. God won't send you back and say, I'm sorry, I can't accept this. Don't come back to me until you've got it right, okay? He will never say that. What he wants isn't the perfect you coming to him. What he wants is the imperfect you coming to him. To come to him and tell him you want to treasure him more. To say, here I am. Make me more alive. What he doesn't want is for you to recoil from him, to try to figure it out on your own or to try to fit in with the world, to play it safe. Make your own small plans that are just about you. He wants you to say, fit me into your plan. I know I stick out in weird places. Chisel away if you have to. In fact, chisel away until you come back for me or you take me home. Because it's never going to be done. But take me. I am yours. You are building a living house for yourself to dwell in. And I was over here at the bottom of the rubble heap. I'm just glad you dug down deep enough. You found me. You chose me. You made me alive. I'm thankful that I didn't have to earn that. How silly of me to make demands of myself that are higher or different than the ones you have. How blind for me to hope that you will find my gift given to you acceptable. I want to be your holy priest. I'm back to offer another spiritual sacrifice. And I believe you will accept it because I offer it to you through Jesus Christ, your chosen and precious cornerstone. I started out deserving your punishment, but because of his work, all that is left when you look at me is love. You love me just as you love him. So being a priest is hard work. But I hope you see 
that it's wonderful work too. We've addressed this point already, but I have to bring us back now to this point briefly. Because all of us this morning has a decision to make and a destiny that follows. As I asked before, will you choose treasure or tripping? This morning I want to change the analogy a little based on our text. This morning you are not at a crossroads. There's just one road with a big rock in the way. And that rock is Jesus Christ. So as you move toward the future, Jesus encounters you. And that encounter can have two and only two results. The stone in your way is either a foundation stone to which you can commit yourself without any concern of being let down, or it's the stone which due to your rejection of God and God's eventual exaltation leads to your fall. You must, however, encounter the stone. It's in your path. Bear puts it this way. Christ is now seen as the key to all human identity and the touchstone of all endeavor. Faith in him leads to honor, unbelief, to disaster. Peter eliminates all neutral ground. Listen to this. The rejection of Christ does not make him go away, but in fact has ultimate consequences. So I encourage you, as we saw right at the beginning of verse 4, come to him and your cornerstone and your treasure and your identity and your work and your destiny are changed forever. Come to him today and become a living stone and join the rest of us being fitted together. Exiles, it's true, but I hope today excited exiles as well. Why don't we stand and close in prayer? Lord, I thank you so much for these verses. Thank you for moving in Peter to write these down to a group of people who needed to be encouraged, who needed to be reminded that because of your work, Jesus Christ, on our behalf, we rest our whole weight on you and you can carry us and we'll never be put to shame. Our whole eternal future can bank on it. Our whole identity is able to be transformed, not isolated, not alone, not dead, but alive with a purpose, part of your dwelling place, the center of your activity, and not even just there as spectators, but with wonderful work as holy priesthood, offering all the things we do in this life more and more to you and offering those sacrifices that are acceptable to you what a wonderful joy it is to be called your son and daughter this morning. And if, if there's anyone here, and I'm sure there are, who, who have not yet made you the foundation of their spiritual and earthly life, Lord, I beg, move in them today as they face you, this rock in their way, to stop stumbling and tripping and falling over you or trying to ignore you and instead to be made alive and to join us in this, your wonderful work until you return for us. We pray these things in the name of our costly cornerstone, Jesus.
Amen.